0: came to the right place for that. I don't know anything else to preach, so that's all we're going to preach is Jesus, right? If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter one, once again, man, I just love it. Every week, it seems like there's more and more new faces here, and uh, if y'all are new here, man, we hope that you just feel right at home. one thing we do ask you to do: uh, There's a uh, cards on the pew rack in front of you. If this is your first time, if you would fill that out, and then go take it to the welcome center in the foyer out there, give that to them, and they're going to give you uh, something in return from us. Uh, we just want to know who you are. We're not going to make you stand up and embarrass you, or, or call you during supper time in the evenings or anything like that. Just uh, we just want to know we're glad you're here. So be sure to fill out one of those cards there. Uh, Ephesians 1, last week we looked at verses 18 through 22 here in chapter 1 of Ephesians and we learned what Paul meant when he said that um, he prays that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And I talked about how before the fall of Adam and Eve, they were able to see things the way that God sees them. They were able to interpret life and everything around them through the spiritual eyes that That God had created them with, but one of the consequences of their sin was that they lost that ability. In fact, in Genesis 3 7, it says that as soon as they ate of the forbidden fruit, the very first consequence, it says, the eyes of both of them were opened. Now, usually when we talk about somebody's eyes being opened, we talk about that in, in a positive sense, that that is a good thing but remember this is a result of their sin and rebellion so what that meant was that their physical natural human eyes had now been open and their spiritual eyes were closed they could now only see things from this limited human perspective that same phrase about eyes being open comes up again in the new testament but this time it's in a whole new context It's in Luke chapter 24 where it talks about the two men who are walking down the road to Emmaus after Jesus had resurrected. And there's this big stir going around in in Jerusalem about all the things that had transpired over the last three days. And Jesus suddenly appears and is walking with them, but they don't recognize it as him. And he asks them uh, what they're talking about, and and so they tell them. And then it says that he begins... um, explaining all the scriptures and how they refer to himself and it says that when jesus was doing this explaining himself and all the scriptures that their hearts inside of them began to to burn inside and so they had they invited jesus to stay with them for the night and and come into their house and and they had some food there and it says that jesus after taking the bread and praying he broke it and gave it to them and then it says in verse 31 that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they recognized him. And so here in the Bible, you've got the same phrase. The eyes of both of them were opened. The first time, it is as, it is as a result of sin. The second time, it's as a result of the gospel. The first time, it was their natural eyes that were opened. The second time, it's their spiritual eyes that were opened. That account there in Luke is a good example of one of the main points from last week, that through Jesus, we now have the ability to see things the way that God sees them. In the text in Ephesians, there were three specific things that Paul said he wanted us to see this way. He said, I pray that your eyes will be The the eyes of your heart will be opened to the hope of your calling, to God's inheritance in the saints, and to the power that we have in Christ, and we learn what those three things mean. But there are other things that we can see from a gospel perspective as well, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. There's one more part of Ephesians 1 that we didn't look at last week. It was the last two verses of the chapter, verse 22 and 23. So let's all stand together. And read these two verses. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that here in this place, by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the things that you want us to see, that we would see you for who you really are and all your glory and your grandeur and your power, and, God, that we would be changed by it. It's as simple as that, Lord. We want to see you so that we can be changed, that our lives may more accurately reflect you and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These two verses make up one whole sentence, and it's a sentence that is absolutely loaded with lots of profound meaning. We're going to break it down into some individual phrases here and look at each one. The first one there, he says, "...and he," talking about God the Father, "...put all things in subjection under his feet." Talking about the feet of Jesus. The word subjection means to obey to submit to one's control. God put all things under the rule and control of Jesus. All things are subject to Him. Now I should probably walk off the stage right now and just let that sink in for a week and then come back and talk about it. I mean, if you think all things are subject to the rule and control of Jesus. If you think about what all things means, I mean, there's a lot in there that we could spend a whole week just talking about. The term under his feet has a lot of meaning too. For one, it signified a dominant victory over an opponent, over an enemy. And it also had a lot to do with the Middle Eastern culture at that time and is still relevant in the Middle Eastern culture today. How many of you remember towards the end of the Iraq War when uh, the troops stormed into Baghdad and the people there tore down that huge statue of Saddam Hussein in the main square there? Y'all remember seeing that on the news and and just the sight of what they did after that statue came down? They all took off their shoes and began beating the head of that statue with the bottom of their feet. And the reason why they did that is because the bottom of the foot is very offensive in Middle Eastern culture. To signify that one was under somebody's foot was about the worst insult you could give somebody. There was no lower place to be than under somebody's foot. I mean, in fact, in that culture... You don't even sit with your legs, one leg crossed over another one because it exposes the bottom of your foot to someone and people get very offended about that. And so for Paul to use this term, it was very strong language that he used in order to convey, convey just how large and in charge Jesus really is. All right, now think about this for a moment. All things are under the rule and control of of Jesus. There is nothing above him. Not just above him, there's nothing above his foot. Nothing above him, nothing outside of his authority. And so here's the first thing that we're going to look at this morning through the lens of the gospel. There is no president, king, dictator, or government that operates outside the authority and control of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. We've talked about this before, but some of us need to be reminded again. This means that if we belong to Christ, there is no government, We should ever be afraid of or get all worked up and anxious about. None. There is nothing that they can do. No decision that can be made by any government that affects the events of the world without first being signed off by Jesus. And everything He orchestrates and everything that He allows to happen in the world is ultimately done for the benefit of His bride, the church, us, and the glory of His name. Folks, too many of us keep looking at the things that are going on in in the world through the eyes of the world instead of looking at them through the lens of the gospel. No, we're looking at them through the lens of Fox News. We're looking at them through the lens of politics, through the lens of our own agenda and understanding. And when you do that, you're going to get all worked up and anxious and fearful about what's going on. Y'all, the media's job is to get people as worked up as they can be. I mean, that's what sells. That's what keeps people turned in. And many of us are letting them play us just like a fiddle. And so many are going, oh no, we're, we are losing our country. Oh no, China and Russia are making moves to, to take us down. Oh no, Islam is just going to take over the world and we're all going to die and there's all this doom and gloom going on and everybody wringing their hands. And you can keep looking at these things through the lens of the world. And if you do, you're going to spend your whole life in fear and anxiety, scared to death to go outside, stockpiling all kinds of supplies and goods while people around you are starving and in need or you can choose to look at the events of the world through the lens of the gospel and realize that all things have been put in subjection under the feet of jesus and nothing happens without his say so and if you do that You'll be able to say the same thing with full confidence that David did in Psalm fifty-six, eleven, when he said, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In Psalm 118, 6, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Through Jesus, we have the ability to see worldly events the way that God does under his complete and total authority. Look at the next phrase in the sentence. He says, And gave him as head over all things to the church. This triumphant ruler that all things are subject to has been given to the church. That is you and me and all who put their trust in Christ alone. It doesn't say that he's been given to the whole world. It doesn't say that he's been given to the United States of America. It doesn't say that he's been given to the nation of Israel. It says that he has been given specifically to the church. And this just reinforces the fact that he does all things not for the benefit of the world, not even for the benefit of the United States or anyone else but his bride, the church. That's who he is working all things for. And then the next phrase he says, which is his body? One of the points of last week's message was about how valuable you are to God. If any of you still have a hard time seeing that, this right here should help you see it a little clearer. It says right here that we're considered his body. Why is that significant? We'll flip over a page to Ephesians chapter 5. what it says in verses 28 through 30. It says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. How much does Jesus love and value you? As much as he does himself, his own body. That's the analogy that Paul was making here with wives and husbands and Jesus and his bride, the church. I'll tell you what it means to love someone like you do your own body. Well, first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean looking in the mirror and loving what you see. It doesn't mean standing there and going, oh, yeah. Yeah. I look good and I love that. That's, that's not what it means. That, that would be more of a weird Eros kind of love. Rather than the agape love that's talking about here, it's not erotic love, it is unconditional love. But here's what else it means every one of us instinctively protect and care for our own bodies. I mean, we can't help it. That's just the way that God wired us. It's an instinct so ingrained in us that we don't even have to think about it. We just automatically do it. I mean, if someone picks up a rock and chunks it at you and you see that rock coming for your head, what are you going to do? You're going to duck. You're going to get out of the way. It's an instinctive reflex that God created us with to care for our bodies. And so this is what the scripture is conveying. It's a love that is so strong for someone that you don't even have to really think about it. It's a love that's not based on on whether or not somebody deserves our love. Deserving it is not even in the equation. It's just, I love them. I'm going to protect them. It's just an automatic reflex and so that's how paul is saying that jesus loves us it is not a love based on merit but a protective nurturing unconditional love the way that we are automatically wired to love and care for our own physical bodies you can't help but do that now someone might bring up the fact but what about those who who purposely harm themselves like cutting and and self-harming and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, how far are they really going with that? I mean, it's not like people are going all the way and cutting their whole arm off. I mean, you can harm yourself up to a point, but that instinctive desire to protect yourself is really only going to let you go so far. I mean, it takes severe psychological damage or demonic influence To override that instinctive self-protection. And then there's the obvious question that some will no doubt have. That if this is how Paul is saying Jesus cares for us. And if he can't help but care for and protect his own body. And we are considered his body. Then why do such bad things happen to people. Because if that's the case, then what that means is Jesus is purposely harming his own body. 6 weeks ago, I allowed a 10-inch gash to be cut in both of my knees and four separate ends of my bones to be sawed completely in two. It was a traumatic And brutal thing done to my body that I'm still recovering from. But I didn't do that maliciously. I didn't do it to harm myself. I actually allowed that to happen for the eventual betterment of myself. If all you did was look at that skin being cut and those bones being sawed as an isolated thing without knowing any other information, you would think that, I mean, it was horrible. And barbaric. But when you look at it in the context of improving someone's quality of life, then it takes on a whole new meaning. It does. There is an acceptance of that trauma that we wouldn't have if we just looked at it in in isolation. Yes, there are bad things that happen to some of God's people. Damage that can be done to his own body. And if you look at those incidents in isolation, through anything other than the lens of the gospel, you're going to naturally assume things like God is not good, that he should be blamed, that God is punishing me for something I must have done, or that he's a distant God who is not involved In the everyday affairs of life, he just kind of sits back and lets things randomly run their course. And if bad things happen, then oh well. But if you look at it through the lens of the gospel, you see that we are his body. And he loves us as he loves himself. And all things are subject to his authority and his control. You'll see that his ways are always good. That his timing is always perfect. That everything he does and everything he allows is done in absolute perfect wisdom. And seeing things from that perspective won't take away the pain. But it does make it a little more bearable. And it keeps your heart from being filled with resentment, bitterness, and anger. During the time I was in the hospital and my physical body was recovering from the surgery, part of the body of Christ, this part right here in particular, our church, experienced a painful loss of one of our own. Jessica Lusk lost her husband Cody, mother of their baby girl. And it's a situation that if you don't look at it with a gospel perspective, it can be downright unbearable. It doesn't make sense. Why in the world would this happen? But Jessica has chosen to look at it through the cross, which has not only helped her, it has had a tremendous impact on so many others that are just witnessing her faith during this. I asked her if I could share this, and she gave me permission. It's something that she posted on Facebook that if you haven't read on there, I wanted all y'all to hear. Because this is an example of someone who knows what it means to belong to the one Whom God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Here's just a small part of what she posted. She said, as hard as this is, I have peace. God is so much bigger than my pain. Nothing happens without sifting through our Heavenly Father's hands first. Therefore, this happened in his timing. I may never understand, and that is okay. I trust my God. Mm. jessica will probably be the first to tell you that seeing things from that perspective doesn't take away the pain nobody's making that claim god doesn't even make that claim but he does promise to be with us right there in the middle of it but what it gives is a sense of security And peace and strength and hope that would not be there by looking at it in any other way. Any other way. One of the things you've heard me say pretty often is that trust is the highest level we can attain in any relationship. Some may argue and say, well, no, love is the highest level. But you can actually love someone and not fully trust them. Trust is the highest and most freeing and liberating level there is. And when we can see things through the lens of the gospel, it enables us to trust God more. Now, seeing things the way that God does does not mean that we're going to know all the reasons why. Because if we could see everything about every situation, then there would be no need for trust. But God wants us to trust Him. Seeing things the way God does means being able to see it as something that God is doing for us rather than against us. It means seeing it not as punishment for something that we must have done wrong, but as an act of his sovereign wisdom that he is doing right. It means seeing it not as a random act as a result of a disconnected, uninvolved God, but uh, as something allowed by the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. According to Ephesians 1.11, it means seeing it not as something done for our bad, but something that God is working out for our good. According to Romans 8.28, God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. All things means every event, every occurrence, every situation, every pain, every struggle that happens in our lives. He's above it all. Turn back to John chapter 9 for just a minute. There's one more thing I want to show you about this. Gospel of John chapter 9. Verse 1 says, And he passed by, talking about Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So the disciples can only see this situation through their dim, limited perspective. And all they can assume from that perspective is that this has to be someone's fault. They saw it as punishment, either for the man's sins or the sins of his parents. And, you know, that is a very common assumption that we make when we look at things through our own perspective. I and mean, we think when bad things happen that it's got to be somebody's fault. And we usually put the fault on ourselves first. I mean, I, would, I can probably guarantee that there are some in here this morning and you are struggling right now with what it is that you must have done to deserve what you're going through now. And if that's the case, and I really want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Something I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Jesus took all of the punishment for your sin on the cross. He took all of the punishment for all of your sin. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus did that? All of them. He paid for them all in full. There's nothing else that can be done for your sin that hasn't already been done by Jesus. That's why he said, It is finished. Yeah, that's something to shout about. (laughs) And so for you to be punished for something now would mean that the cross wasn't enough. It would be God going, you know what, dadgummit, man, my son, he was this close. But he didn't fully complete the mission. And so now because you messed up, I'm going to have to add the death of a loved one. I'm going to have to add losing your job. I'm going to have to add financial struggle to your life. I'm going to have to add some sickness because Jesus, he didn't quite get there. Do you hear how silly that is? Jesus either completed the mission fully or he didn't. He was either enough or he wasn't. The Bible's pretty clear that he is enough. He did it all. But here's the other side of looking at things through that same lens. If we aren't assuming that we're the cause of it, then we're going to assume that someone else is. And if we do that, we take a big drink of bitter poison. It slowly starts destroying us on the inside. To put the blame on you or anyone else is to say that God is not sovereign, man is is to say that God has not put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. He's put some things in subjection under man's. This is the lens that the disciples were looking through at this blind man, but then Jesus tells them what it looks like from his perspective. Verse 3, Jesus said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This thing right here with this man was about so much more than somebody receiving their sight. It was a defining moment in Jesus' ministry that accelerated his journey to the cross. Just before this, in chapter 8, Jesus riled up the Pharisees and the religious leaders by claiming his deity and his equality with God. And so now, right after this... He is no longer declaring that with words, but now He's displaying it with power. This event was also used to make a huge contrast between the Old and the New Covenant, between religion and relationship, between tradition and the gospel, and between the authority of man and the authority of God. Notice how Jesus chose to heal this man. Now, Keep in mind, all he had to do was look at him and go, eyes be open, and he would have immediately gained his sight. But he didn't do that. He chose a very unconventional, out-of-the-ordinary way of healing him. Verse 6 and 7 says... When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Why in the world did Jesus heal him this way? There are 613 commands contained in the law of Moses. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders took it upon themselves to pile on even more and add to all that. For example, the law of Moses said it was forbidden to work on the Sabbath. Everybody needed to rest. And so now they had to define, well, what exactly is considered work. There were many things that they listed as work that you couldn't do, but one of those was making bricks. You couldn't make bricks on the Sabbath because making bricks was considered work. And they said, okay, well, how do you define making bricks? So they said, well, if you mix water and clay, water and dirt, I mean, that hardens and makes bricks. So they said, okay, now it is forbidden on the Sabbath to mix water and dirt. Because if you do that, you can make bricks. And so they took it even further. They said, well, if you spit on the ground, that's basically mixing water and dirt. They said, okay, well then no spitting on the Sabbath. Because if you spit on the ground, you're going to mix water and dirt. And if you mix water and dirt, you can make bricks. And if you make bricks, you're working. And you can't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, you can't spit on the Sabbath. I mean, this was the insanity of legalism that they were just burying these people in. You know what day it was that Jesus healed this blind man? The Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was literally spitting on their tradition, their religion, their self-righteousness, and their own self-proclaimed authority. That's why he healed the man this way. We don't have time to read the whole account here, but I encourage you to go home and read it. Because, I mean, this caused quite a stir in town. I mean, people were livid And beside themselves at what happened here. So much so that they ended up excommunicating the man who got his sight back. I mean, kicking him out of the temple. Out of being able to take part in any of their religious ceremonies, which the text refers to as putting him out. I want to pick up with what happens next at the end of this. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe him?" Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now listen to what Jesus says here. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He's not talking about physical sight anymore here. He's talking about giving people the ability to see with their spiritual eyes once again to restore what was lost in the garden in the original sin. There are some of you here today, probably many of you, who have had... Something happened in your life that has caused lots of heartache, anger, lots of resentment and bitterness, fear, anxiety and worry. none of those things being from God. none of them from Him. This morning, I really believe that the Lord wants to set you free from all that. And he wants to do it by allowing you to look at that situation from a new perspective. A perspective that has been made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus and the giving of his Holy Spirit to you who believe. He wants you to know that he loves you. That he is for you. Not against you, and that He is working all things for your good and His glory. All He asks is that you trust Him, just trust Him with it. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Your ways are so far beyond us. God, this morning we confess our own self centered arrogance. When we take your glory for ourselves, When we claim authority that belongs solely to you, when we define things outside of the way that you define them, God, when we refuse to look at any situation other than through our own agenda, our own opinion, Lord, this morning I pray that we be given the grace to be able to just lay that down and say, I want to see things the way that you see them. Lord, for those who have been just so affected all their life by some defining moment that has just caused so much turmoil in their life, the anger and the bitterness and the just the, the heartache, Lord, that you would set them free, that this would be a defining moment in their life when you set them free and you showed them this thing from a completely and totally new perspective. God, I pray that we would be a people who, who know what it means to fully trust you. A people who know how to find you in the middle of the pain and the heartache. People who are standing on a foundation that cannot be moved. Because we know what it means to belong to the one who is overall. all. Lord, I know that there is work that you are doing in people's hearts at this very moment. And I thank you so much for that. Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you just have your way. That we would get out of the way and let you do what you desire to do. Jesus, we love you thank you, we worship you, in your name we pray, amen.